This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Good to meet you and to get to spend this time with you on this rainy San Francisco evening. You as well. Um, and thank you so much for coming to be with us. My pleasure. Um, it has been a fascinating journey through <laughs> your book, Hive Mind. Um, and I'd like to start actually with asking a bit about your background mm -hmm. And your interest in your work on emotional regulation. Mm -hmm. um, if you could talk a bit about that, like what animates your passion around emotion regulation? Mm -hmm. uh, so I was at Tufts University for my doctorate, where I stayed for my postdoctoral work. And I've always been interested in emotions uh, and believe that they're some of our most powerful attributes and that they really define our values and are a source of energy for us. Mm -hmm. And I've always been interested in the differences in emotion, uh, both the level of emotion and how we regulate our emotions. And I had done that work, primarily research, uh, during my postdoctoral fellowship, but then I moved to a mostly teaching college where I spent more of my days in the classroom than in the lab and really started seeing emotions in the classroom and emotions as part of teaching. And that shifted my research program and my interests a lot into um, thinking about the applications of emotion regulation uh, at work and in the classroom, which led to my first book uh, and a lot of the speaking that I've been doing and working with faculty on different campuses, thinking about emotionally engaging teaching and I think that there's certainly a strong thread of emotion in hive mind, but uh, more of my work has been applications for teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, I'm curious to ask, since we're all here in this <laughs> institution of higher education, um, what have been some of the patterns that you've observed in terms of um, both kind of like issues that are arising on the emotional level mm -hmm. in educational environments? And then what have been some of the perhaps like strategies or experiments to help right. regulate in the service of generative learning space and yeah. people showing up? Well, I think uh, I've seen a real shift mm -hmm. in, in that work um, over the last several years. And originally when I wrote the book and when I began talking on college campuses and working with faculty and workshops, a lot of it was about introducing more emotion into the classroom uh, as a way of getting students engaged and interested, of demonstrating the value of the work of the classroom, uh, the relevance of it for their lives. And since the last presidential election, <laughs> I think uh, the tone has shifted in the faculty questions and demands and what they're struggling with has shifted to um, regulating more emotion in the classroom, that there's a little too much emotion at times in the classroom. And how do we deal with that? Uh, and, and how do we... Mm -hmm. Oh, can I just ask there, what does that too much mean? Uh, a lot of 
Well, it varies from campus to campus, mm -hmm. I think. Um, for instance, on my campus, my students are still um, more, I need to draw them out. But what I've been hearing from faculty on other campuses is more about contentious uh, conversations uh, between students getting sometimes too emotional, um, students having trouble regulating their emotions in those conversations, and turning it toward a more productive uh, experience. Mm -hmm. So that has been the way that I think it has shifted a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and in this kind of looking at how regulation functions and how we are emotional creatures, like on these micro and macro levels, um, and shifting towards talking about your book, um, do the insights around emotional regulation, like in terms of talking about an individual or a small group of people, does that all just kind of automatically scale up when we're talking about much larger collections of people or mass? Right, that's a fascinating question. I think that I think that it does, uh, but it changes its nature. Uh, and so I think that in the ways in which it does is that um, our individual emotions shape each other's emotions. And we know that emotions are contagious and they spread from person to person. Barbara Fredrickson, who's a positive psychologist, says that emotions aren't bounded by skin, that we're not, mm. it's not that my emotions are changing your emotions, we're actually sharing the emotion, which I loved. And we know that, especially in large groups, emotions can intensify quite quickly, uh, and sometimes even in a dangerous way. And I think that that's the way that they sometimes change their nature when they're a collective emotion, that our individual emotions influence each other, but then if we're collectively feeling emotion, uh, we can sometimes think in ways that are not as rational mm -hmm. as we are as individuals. Or there can be this like force multiplier mm -hmm. effect that exactly. can go any number of different directions. And something I appreciate in your book is that um, you really stay out of the grip it seems of this good bad binary because um, often discussions particularly when it's about how much of our social and political lives have moved online are like that it's more positive or negative right or alarmist or you know and I, f I feel that you're in this both and place mm -hmm. around it which I'd love to um, talk with you about um, and first, I just want to acknowledge the title, Hive Mind, <laughs> um, and uh, acknowledge that in this moment, um, there is a lot of collective human concern mm -hmm. about bees, like mm -hmm. literal bees, mm -hmm. right, with this upwelling of concern around yeah. bee populations um, declining um, and all kinds of like affection and appreciation for bees. Right. Like I've never heard people talk about bees so much in my <laughs> life as in the last couple of years. I see them everywhere. I thought it was just the book title, but <laughs> it does seem like they're everywhere. Yeah. You turn. Yeah. And so while there's a lot of this like pro-bee mm -hmm. <laughs> sentiment, um, Hive brings up something different, um, particularly in our very individualistic society and culture where um, there's a lot of fetishization of like my original unique thought and I am me and the rugged individual and all of that, where terms like hive or tribal um, or anything that's talking about how we collectively influence each other can have a negative bias or connotation or be associated with like groupthink or 
cults. Um, and so I want to ask, like, how do you, um, yeah, what is your approach to engaging with some of just the existing bias that's there or assumptions that people have around looking at our collective Absolutely. Natures. Yeah. Right. And I think if we look, we were talking a little bit earlier in the green room about uh, zombie culture and your writings on that. And I think that if you look to our fiction uh, and particularly our horror, there crops up again and again this idea of creatures that behave like honeybees, that behave as a hive mind, um, the Borg and Star Trek and Cybermen and Doctor Who. Uh, th this theme recurs again and again, and I think that we do have this instinctual fear of losing our individuality in the collective, of being subsumed into uh, this greater body. And I think that part of it is, as you said, uh, our kind of clinging to the individual as the most important. Uh, and I think that we need to hold on to both, that I think human beings have both sides uh, of their nature, that we do have this strong individuality. Um, we do have our own thoughts and opinions, clearly. But at the same time, we're also these social creatures uh, and that a lot of our ideas and opinions are not all our own <laughs> and that they're sourced from the collective, from the opinions and ideas of our social others and that there's real richness in the collective experiences. Um, and I re talk about in the book, uh, Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Dancing in the Streets, I think the name of it is, uh, which is a beautiful history of all of these parts, um, these times when human beings came together in ecstatic group ritual uh, to dance and to sing and to share with each other. And I think our contemporary Western culture has lost a lot of that uh, and that we need each other and that a lot of our current feeling of isolation, you know, we like to blame the smartphones and we like to blame a lot of different things, but may have to do more with our moving away from all of that uh, and moving away from the collective and not um, being with our social others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and something, you know, you're exploring um, these different dimensions of the way that um, that this understanding that like, oh, my thoughts are not just my own. My emotions are not just my own. Like how are we affecting and sharing each other is not some kind of demotion, mm -hmm. <laughs> but is a gift. Right. Um, and is taking on really different shapes at really um, high speeds mm -hmm. um, as this landscape of social media changes. Can you, um, yeah, so curious to ask you about that you know right. like what do you what has your research um shown a light on in terms of some of these trends mm -hmm. i think that as these are early days and yeah. in the research and the data and in our experience of social media and how it's changing us and so i think we need a lot more research mm -hmm. so i am not saying anything definitively but the best that i can tell looking at the data so far is that social media is amplifying all of those tendencies that we have uh, toward our toward being such hyper-social creatures. And some of those amplifications are going to be very negative uh, because there are negative sides to being a collective species. There are negative sides to forming in-groups and out-groups, of course. Uh, but that they're also amplifying our p positive aspects as well and that there are ways in which uh, social media is kind of taking all of that and just 
amplifying everything. And so I think that we need to attend to the positives and the negatives. And I think we also need to ask the question, how can we best shape these tools and how can we best kind of force the platforms themselves to shape their tools uh, through legislation, uh, policy changes to nudge the more pro-social, to nudge the positive rather than the anti-social. What, um, could you share some examples of like what that maybe has looked like or perhaps like what that could look like in terms of nudging pro-social or what forces Mm -hmm. are conducive to more anti-social social contagion on that that level? Well, there's been, there have been a few, for the most part, the major platforms have not done much uh, to help us in that regard, I would say. Uh, But there have been a few positive movements. For instance, YouTube um, demonetizing uh, like anti-vaccination videos uh, or other conspiracy theory videos and, you know, taking a step and saying, okay, we're going to change how we do things so that these terrible things don't happen, which you would have hoped these things would have kicked in earlier uh, or more strongly. But things like that, I think, are, are good movements. There have also been some wonderful writing by different scholars suggesting different ways that you could change how, you know, just how likes work or how, um, you know, putting a delay between posting inflammatory comments, you know, or some kind of... Uh, interstitial moment uh, to discourage that. There's been lots of different ideas. I don't think we have solutions yet, but I think thinking along those lines uh, is probably positive. There's also there's also research studies suggesting that for people who we might expect to be more vulnerable, for instance, people uh, with severe depression uh, or the elderly, people who have trouble getting out of the home, uh, that social media can amplify well-being because it allows them, uh, kind of lowers the cost of admission, so to speak, to social interaction. And so I think that there are these positive ways that uh, using social media can uh, enhance well-being rather than detract from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and could you... Well, I want to return to social media a bit later, mm-hmm. but um, um, coming back to, you lay a really great interdisciplinary foundation um, in the book around you know, drawing from different fields and having lots of fascinating conversations with lots of fascinating people um, to look at what are the ways that we operate mm-hmm. <laughs> as coordinated honeybees. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was some of the, well, I want to ask like one, what were some of the assumptions that you came into this research with? Mm-hmm. And then what did you find most surprising mm-hmm. or exciting in your research and conversations? Yeah. Great. Uh, Well, I think one of the things that I was most delighted by uh, was some of the research at the level of the brain, because most of my teaching at my college is in the neuroscience department. And so talking with Jim Cohn and Charlottesville in particular about he's a neuroscientist who has a whole social baseline theory and quite a lot of evidence at the level of the brain to support it that He believes that our brain relies on our social others as resources and that our brain expects them to be there. Uh, And that when they're not there, we are, we 
issue all these alarms. Uh, there are hormonal responses, uh, threat-related responses. And so he thinks that even most of psychology, you know, we take the one person and we put them in the lab or we put them in the neuroimaging scanner and we study them in this isolated context. Uh, and he thinks that that's, we're actually not studying the basic unit of humanity mm. <laughs> when we do that because we expect, our brains expect to be together. They expect, and you know, Social isolation is a form of torture for that reason. Um, and in and, this sense, the basic unit then not being the individual human, mm-hmm. but the relationship. Right, a dyad mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, more that mm-hmm. uh, we're expecting our social others to be there. Um, and so I think some of his research is really beautiful. Uh, there's also some of the most exciting research, I think, is at that layer but a little bit beyond it, looking at neural synchrony. And uh, Talia Wheatley at Dartmouth does a lot of work on this, that as we become friends with each other, as we develop social relationships, our, how we our brains react to just even, she uses YouTube videos <laughs> and shows people uh, comedic little clips and things like that and finds that she can predict who's friends. You know, she takes this whole cohort at Dartmouth College uh, and and studies them and how their brains respond to these different kind of comedic and divisive clips and can predict statistically who's friends with each other because their brains react similarly to the, uh, to the clips, which kind of blows my mind. <laughs> and I think that that is some really exciting work. It is... Yeah, that is fascinating. Yeah. And in terms of um, just staying there in terms of thinking about with neural synchrony, what is going on when like how does this develop and like what is happening mm-hmm. when we're in this right. space? Well, I think there's two really intriguing possibilities and I've talked with her and she's following both of them up right now. Um one is that, you know, because she takes these students uh, in their first year and she follows them over time and it could be that what she's tapping into is that we choose friends who react to the world similarly as we do, who laugh at the same things, who are interested in the same uh, stories, things like that. Or it could be as we become close with people, share with people, uh, more and more we take on their reactions and their approaches to life and their uh, personality traits. Or, of course, it could be both, (laughs) which it usually is in psychology. Um, But she is – so she's testing out both of those things. And I think probably there's a little bit of both. I think part of what draws us to people uh, for friendships and for romantic relationships and things like that are the fact that they see the world similarly, that they have the similar senses of humor and interest and things like that. But then I think we're also shaped by the people we spend the most time with. And I think you can feel this, you know, if you spend a lot of time with someone new and you find yourself adopting their mannerisms, you know, uh, or using their catchphrases. And it it is kind of a mind building of sorts, I think, friendship. Mm I think there needs to be a lot more research on in praise of friendship as yeah. one of the most important <laughs> relationships. Um, and so, yeah, I loved how you just said that in terms of, you know, the ways that we're shaped um, by others, right, on all these ways that are like physiological and psychological and neurological and all the things. Um, and so as we're shaped with in relationship to people where there is this kind of resonance and these positive feedback loops, Um, how are we also shaped in relationship to 
out-group, in-group, out-group dynamics? Or how are we shaped in terms of our understanding of self and belonging in opposition to others who we do not identify with or who have radically different worldviews? Right. Uh, and I think that this certainly is one of the challenges that we're facing. I think that the most dangerous part of all of this is our... Um, is the story that there are, you know, kind of good guys and bad guys, uh, and there's uh, that we are on opposing sides, uh, and allowing that, you know, one of the things I do in Hive Mind is is look at narrative and look at the narratives that the Hive Mind adopts, uh, and these seductive stories that we tell ourselves, uh, and I think that we do form these in-groups and out-groups, certainly, and there is out-group hostility. But a lot of the experts I interviewed for the book, from evolutionary biology to neuroscience, thinks that that all echoed this thought that the out-group hostility is more of a cultural uh, artifact than we've been, um, than we have chosen to believe and that we've been talking a lot about, uh, that we are more strongly in-group members. But if we allow ourselves a narrative that tells us that we're prone to out-group hostility, that we're prone to uh, forming these us versus them, uh, that in some ways gives us permission to do so. Uh, and I think that that's, that's a danger. Um, but certainly, you know, we do know that there are processes of group polarization where if you only... Um, socialize and you only discuss things with people who hold your own opinions and you hear them echoed back at you and then you don't hear dissension, that that does both entrench people in their views and then also move them more extreme to the outskirts. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that crossing those divides is important. And I think that um, calling back on that narrative a bit uh, and focusing more on our proneness to in-groups and less on our proneness to out-group hostility would be pro-social and beneficial, um, even if it's not true. <laughs> <clears throat> this makes me think about um, uh, some of the power of narratives when they that gets circulated in the media, for example, when there's a natural disaster, mm -hmm. right? And a lot of times the dominant narrative will be like that this is bringing out people's worst yeah. um, who are acting in a really selfish way or being violent or, you know, taking down other people, um, right? And the stories um, and narratives that help us see it is like disasters are also where people rise to their best mm -hmm. um, in terms of resilience and helping each other out and sacrifice and, um, and just how much, especially at that time of mass vulnerability, um, how powerful those narratives can then be to shape behavior, but shape how we're understanding behavior and what we literally are and are not seeing. Um, and in terms of what you were just saying, how right there can be this deepening in-group hyper-socialness <laughs> um, that can then become more and more extreme, um, I mean, this is a concern that's being brought up in so many different places and that you're also raising um, in terms of polarization, mm -hmm. right? Or like in the subtitle of your book, right? Talking about our divided world. Um, and it seems like we are losing some of our capacity um, to stay present <laughs> with these tensions or with contradictions or to... Um, engaging in dissent and debate and like true diversity mm -hmm. of opinion, mm -hmm. which can get very flattened into this uh, reductive binary. Um, 
Yeah. So could you speak yes. to that? Um, and I think that I think really what we need, Cass Sunstein uh, as a scholar who's written a lot about this, is uh, to create um, he, what he calls manufactured serendipity, to create opportunities for people who are very dissimilar to encounter each other because we increasingly segregate ourselves uh, ideologically mm-hmm. and that we need something, you know, as I say in the conclusion of the book, I share the story of my college roommate uh, who was very different than me ideologically, at least starting out, and um, that we need to form those relationships, but we're not going to do so unless we have you know, change society somehow to um, to allow for these intersections. Um, because it's so complicated because I think that there's also, a, I agree with you about the flattening and the um, not encountering diverse opinions, uh, but there's also dangers of you know both sides-isms and treating mm-hmm. it as if you know some of these issues that we're struggling with really have two legitimate sides or equal like <laughs> this false equivalency right exactly yeah. and i think that that's another danger mm-hmm. uh that we need to avoid and so that's that's a really tricky thing and i think it's going to be one of the hardest things that we're facing is how to uh both get people to talk to each other who have very different opinions uh without you know having this false equivalency on uncertain topics that are uh clearly you know there's a side that has a moral imperative Right, or like very different power mm-hmm. differential. Right. Um, could you, you talk about, you write about, um, you've already spoken to this some, but about the ways that in terms of like our hive mind online mm-hmm. can build us up and take us down. Yeah. What are some more kind of examples that you found really compelling that mm-hmm. illustrate how this can, how this happens? Yeah. Um yeah, and what those implications are. Right. Um, well, I'm going to take the negative first, if that's okay. Yeah, that's <laughs> uh, great place And to end start. on positive. And, and I think the negative's easier to answer because mm. they're, it's obvious the mm-hmm. ways, I think a lot of the ways that social media can take us down from online harassment uh, and especially uh, harassment campaigns that can occur on Twitter, uh, particularly against women and especially women of color that... Um, cyberbullying, you know, in schools, uh, a lot of, you know, I have a middle schooler and, you know, there are issues that arise there that uh, children have always bullied each other and uh, it's always been a problem, but, you know, the anonymity of it and um, of the social media tools that they have, uh, I think can amplify that. Um in there. terms of there being less consequence or direct mm-hmm. connection. Or, or you don't even know who's doing it at times. Um, and, you know, certainly the, I have a whole section in the winter chapters of the book on conspiracy theories on the rise of conspiracy theories and talk to some people who believe it's not just, the problem is not just that there are more of them and there are more people who believe in them, but they're actually merging uh, the conspiracy theories. It used to be, you know, used to stay in their, oops, isolated subgroups, and now they're kind of making an uber conspiracy out of everything. Um, yeah, there's, uh, you know, the rise of, um, you know, hate groups, uh, allowing them to find each other and more easily band together. So that's a long list <laughs> of uh, negatives, disinformation. I could keep going on and on. Um, 
I'm working against my own thesis here, but uh, there are also ways that social media can build us up, I believe. Uh, and so I interview some people in the book who have found uh, rich sources of support uh, online. I have a close friend um, who struggles with depression, and it has definitely allowed her to reach out for support when in ways that are less taxing for her uh, and and that has been life-changing for her. Um, I interview a young woman in the book uh, who's Native American and she grew up, her grandparents were very kind of distant from their heritage uh, and she was able to find um, information, support, connections, um, really beautiful relationships through social media. I think that uh, people, you know, the whole meetup phenomenon, meetup.com, has allowed, you know, for people who just have kind of niche passions to find each other. I think that, you know, there's a lot of evidence of collective, you know, movements for collective change um, can be benefited through social media. Uh, And it, it allows us to remain in touch with people that we you know, never would otherwise. Um, you know, I have friends from early graduate school who I would never know what's going on in their life if it weren't for social media, but I have watched them adopt two children, watch those children grow. They have a puppy dog now. Um, I feel close to them, uh, even though I haven't seen them in 15 years. And so I think that there are these positives uh, and it may certainly you know, listening to myself talk just then, the negatives seem to outweigh the positives. But I think that the critical point is we're not going to put this all back in a box, right? Uh, it's not, you know, we're not going, our digital lives are not going away. Uh, so what we need to do is we need to have open conversations about how, what to do about the negatives and how to amplify the positives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and at the um, end of the book, you outline different B lessons, <laughs> Um, in terms of like how are we, what are some maybe guiding principles or strategies to navigate our hive mind, um, you know, in ways that knowing that um, these different tendons, this range of tendencies that we have, like all of this can be and is being amplified. Um, and so how we can attend to what practices enhance or detract from our humanity. Mm-hmm. Could you share some of those be lessons? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, one of the focuses in in the book is also what to do about young people and social media and smartphones. Uh, and I interviewed some people uh, along those lines. And I think that, you know, a lot of this just needs to be open conversations and involvement. Um, I did a radio interview once um, and the radio interviewer is prepping me for the interview. Uh, and she found out that my daughter didn't have a smartphone. She was 10 at the time. And she was like, you can't say that. <laughs> uh, but I think that the message is not let's hand, you know, that smartphones and social media, that there's no risks, that there's no dangers. Uh, and let's just hand all of our children, you know, in kindergarten a smartphone uh, and they'll be fine. There's a lot of really wonderful people doing work on how to help families navigate the digital space with their children, uh, especially their adolescents. And I think being in Involved developing a whole. Um, Deborah Heitner has a whole thing on uh, media ecology of your own home, mm-hmm. and working together in with your whole family on what are the best ways. Uh, the role of technology in our lives. How much is enough? How much is too much? Um, 
I think that, you know, in modeling that same behavior for your children, there's, um, you know, a lot of the, there's some people at a Boston Children's Hospital, Crystal, Christelle Lavallee, who suggests dipping into your child's social media uh, experiences that you don't want to be, you want to honor their kind of growing digital identity uh, and not hover, but you don't want to just let them do, <laughs> uh, let them into the wilds of the internet. And so she and her whole, um, the Children Media Center at Boston uh, Children's Hospital, they recommend dipping in, you know, here and there and then having conversations about what you see there so that you're, they know that anything that they might do will be seen by you, but that you're not going to be monitoring everything. Um, and so that was one of the B lessons, I think, was how to uh, develop and have healthy social media habits uh, with your family in your home. Mm -hmm. um, are there other others that's kind of like stand out in terms of like what are some of these potentials mm -hmm. to use um, the existing ways that we're wired, yeah, <laughs> and now ways that we're getting like further wired or rewired mm -hmm. online, um, yeah, that can enhance and support tendencies yeah. towards, um, yeah, towards positive coordination. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think one is, is kind of circling back to what we started out talking about, uh, is being aware of and honoring both your individuality and your collective sides, uh, that finding rich sources of, um, bonding with your collective others while also being wary of the ways that when we think collectively, we can think irrationally or think uh, oversimplistically. And to always question that, uh, I think, as well. There's also some really wonderful people doing great work on how to counter disinformation mm -hmm. um, and how to be uh, more critical consumers of information that we find online because that's definitely one of the risks. Uh, and that I think he, f um, some of that work focuses on using the hive mind in a way, you know, so uh, when you encounter information that, especially if it's one of those seductive stories that you want to believe and that seems, you know, you just want to click and share it, uh, to take a moment and not go through a laborious fact-checking exercise, but you know, Google it, <laughs> see what other people have said, uh, you know, check Snopes.com before doing that, uh, relying on the collective source of knowledge that you have there uh, in order to question some of those things. I think we also uh, need to, you know, develop these, these manufactured serendipity somehow mm -hmm. to get more opportunity. And there have been some wild proposals, uh, I think, is it uh, Martha Nussbaum had, proposes that we should take all of our adolescents and have them do a year of service somewhere else in the country as part of our high school experience uh, so that they see a whole nother culture and um, interact with people different from them. Um, I don't have, I think that's a little dramatic <laughs> and I don't have a, an easy solution for that, but I think it's something that we need to sit down as a culture and think about. Right. And that was so much right of the promise of the Internet mm -hmm. is that it would be manufacturing all kinds of serendipity. Right. And has and does. Um, and in terms of being really expansive and um, conversations and forms of knowledge circulation that may not otherwise happen in that way. Right. And then this contraction 
where it can be like, okay, I'm curating my own, you know, daily me um, online media diet experience that can be this affirming hall of mirrors Mm -hmm. um, or just what I enjoy and already agree with, um, with this kind of narrowed filter being aided by non-human um, bots and algorithms who are like, if you liked this, then how about this? Then how about this? And it's like, oh, I like all of this. Imagine that. I'm surrounded by it. <laughs> um, and so uh, it sounds like some of this kind of like critical media diet and ecology and um, practices would be helpful in a lot of ways, but also to think critically about what we may consider some of the positive Mm -hmm. in-groupness online. Like, is that so positive when it's becoming this shrinking ideological island? Um, I want to ask, in the book, you structure it as seasons. (laughs) And I'm curious about that. Um, I found that delightful. (laughs) And, like, what was the intent with that yeah it's just a bit of uh, a metaphor of mm-hmm. in, in ways um it and i think i, I noticed that uh, the interviews that i had done mm-hmm. had started making that structure mm-hmm. and that is kind of just a coincidence mm-hmm. uh, because i sat down and decided uh whom i wanted to interview and what they would contribute to the book and then the order in which I did them was more just kind of happenstance, my schedule and their schedule and things like that. Um, but more of kind of the dark chapters ended up, I actually, it actually was winter <laughs> when I was interviewing them about these more dark topics and then, uh, and, and a few of the spring ones. And so then I just kind of ran with it. Mm-hmm. And so the autumn is more just, you know, the introduction of the ideas that we are a hive mind, some of that neuroscience uh, research, some of the early social media research, and then in the winter, get into dehumanization and conspiracy theories and um, some of the really darker stuff. And then in spring, talk to people who are a little more hopeful. <laughs> uh, and then I end on dogs in the summer. <laughs> My editor, my editor calls it my breakfast at Tiffany's chapter. That if the, we can't agree about anything else, we can agree about these dogs. Um, so that's good. On the note of dogs, something that I've noticed for, or just been curious about for some time, of just noticing, like I notice in my daily life, um, spent in social media, mm-hmm. Facebook in particular, like if waking life was a pie chart, like this increasing slice is cute animal videos and often of interspecies friendship um, or things that are just incredibly (laughs) adorable and moving. And there's such a high tide of this and, you know, and that pie slice grows wider with like, I'm compelled to share this with people. And it is like, here's baby goats and um, it makes people feel happy. Mm -hmm. And wondering if this is some kind of like comfort, psychic comfort food against this backdrop of very grim apocalyptic news. Um, If there's this, if it's acting as some kind of antidote, if in all of our polarizing and challenging human issues that we're having right now that are so apparent, if we're like reaching out to other species to look for other ways to be and also to connect across difference. 
Yeah, I can totally see that. And I um, I think you're alluding to this too, but not just a relief from the negativity, but it's something that we can all agree on. Uh, I think my editor isn't wrong. <laughs> it, um, cute puppies are something Transcendent. that- Yeah, you, you <laughs> might like it. And then the few people, you know, your uncle that you- don't agree with anything else he posts. You know, he's also liking those videos. Uh, and so it may also be that shared experience, you know, one of the few things that we can still not be polarized about. Well, they're definitely playing a role as allies online. <laughs> yep. Um, as well as in our offline lives. Um, in terms of the winter chapter, mm -hmm. um, what stood out to you the most in terms of some of like the key concerns that we should be paying attention to in terms of like hive mind at its worst? Yeah, I think uh, the most negative is uh, my interview with Kelly Baker, who's a historian who studied the Ku Klux Klan uh, before the you know current rise. Uh, she wrote her dissertation and published a book on the 1920s Klan, and we talked a lot about uh, the conspiracy theories and also, you know, these growing banding, not just of different conspiracy theories, but also, you know, um, anti-feminist groups with racist groups with, uh, and that they're banding together as well. Uh, and there's a lot of research um, that I've encountered since writing the book uh, on, you know, the how YouTube in particular is uh, almost, you know, becoming a training ground for thinking in this way because of their algorithms. Uh, Which that, can lead us down more extreme paths of clicks. Right, mm -hmm. and and I um, and so some of that is among the most alarming aspects, I think. Uh, and especially because, you know, some of the writing on that work, you know, shows how just ordinary people who aren't really looking for that, especially young white men, uh, but just are on YouTube watching, you know, some pranks, you know, one of those prankster people, you know, but then as you say, like the, the algorithm predicts, you know, you're going to watch something if it's a little more extreme. And so your little feed on the side gets more and more extreme and that, um, these kind of it's just vulnerable young people are becoming this, these ideas are becoming bred and uh, strengthened. And I think that that all is among the most alarming. And um, I don't let my kid on YouTube. <laughs> it's the one, the one social media that uh, there's a lot of, a lot of things on there. Um, and they haven't done a lot. I think they've done some of the least amount of work filtering and uh, trying to figure out how to combat some of these things. So uh, I would say definitely that's the most negative point in the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And ways that technologies are facilitating, like making much easier mm -hmm. um, what are hateful ideologies that are not new, right. but spreading in these new and ways. And in some ways generating them. Uh, I mean, that's even more like when someone is starting to have these terrible ideas and goes looking for them, and that is a problem that we need to address. But uh, it's even more scary to me that it could be the genesis of some of these ideas. Right, and that could then take on a life of their own, again, aided by non-humans, right. meaning, yeah, like bots, right, who are like, oh, there's, there's energy around this. Mm -hmm. Let's amplify it further. Um, what do you see as the connections between the online and offline hive mind, mm -hmm. like in terms of with what we're talking about right now, 
um, in terms of different forms of extremism that can get cultivated and strengthened online and how that translates offline? Or like, what do you see as that relationship in terms of how the hive is functioning in right. yeah, our physical reality? Yeah. Um, and I think, I think that's another negative <laughs> because, uh, I think that the in-person hive mind, you know, there's a lot, um, you know, someone called this uh, the spiral of silence. You know, if you're not hearing certain ideas that you might have uh, that are antisocial, you're not hearing those thoughts said out loud in your um, in your social groupings that you silence yourself uh, and you assume that you might be the only person who holds this opinion. And in certain cases, when those opinions are uh, very antisocial, that's a good phenomenon. Uh, whereas online, you suddenly, you know, if you've had a thought, you can find it online. Uh, and so I think that that can be a, a real danger and then can affect possibly offline behavior. Uh, if you then find uh, other people echoing these thoughts online, um, then you may feel more comfortable than sharing that thought out loud uh, offline. Um, And in terms of, um, right, which shapes also like what we, what we hear as true <laughs> or ways that we're listening or paying certain attention or not paying attention. Yeah. Um, I know that um, in your book you um, cite Zainab Tufeki, mm -hmm. a techno-sociologist, okay. and um, her work is so interesting in a lot of ways um, and this naming of the attention economy yeah. of being this precious resource that like so many are trying to make a grab on or pull on and like what are some of those antidotes to claim our attention on individual and collective levels mm -hmm. for what are what's important to us. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of spring Mm -hmm. Yay. <laughs> in terms of spring here we are talking on this winter night um in terms of spring what were some of the unexpected um learnings in your research mm -hmm. around um yeah in terms of whether that's around like evolutionary yeah. science or neuroscience um yeah. that I, inspired you yes uh I think that one discovery I don't know if this counts as surprising uh, because it is something I've spent most of my life researching. <laughs> uh, but it was a little bit of a surprise to discover, um, you know, through the interviews and through the writing, because for me, writing and uh, is an act of discovery. I don't know what I think until I write it. And um, was that emotion regulation, I think, is really one of the solutions and one of the um, best ways out of some of these polarized uh, times that we're in. Uh, and so I interviewed two of my best friends, Keith Maddox and Heather Uri, uh, who have been using emotion regulation and their research. Uh, Heather is an emotion regulation researcher. Keith is a social psychologist. Uh, and they have been working with uh, participants to have them regulate their anxiety levels uh, prior to having conversations about racial discrimination with a cross-race partner. 
and trying to see if we can use some of the tools that we've studied and developed in emotion regulation uh, in this pro-social way to get people to be able to um, have productive conversations with people who might have contrasting viewpoints uh, and certainly contrasting experiences of the world in ways that will be more beneficial. Uh, and so that was exciting uh, interview to talk with them about their ideas on that. Uh, and there's a lot, I think, you know, there's a lot of research on moral outrage and uh, how it shuts down conversations and how it contributes to viral um, sharing of polarized positions. And I think we can also use emotion regulation there uh, as well to dial back sometimes some of the heat of the of the moment uh, in order to engage more rationally with uh, people who disagree with us. And so I'm excited that uh, something, in my opinion anyway, <laughs> that I've spent a lot of time thinking about, uh, certainly I've only done a small slice of the huge amount of research on emotion regulation, but that that could hold a key. Mm -hmm. And um, could you kind of like sketch out what that might look like mm -hmm. in terms of like what are those tools? For example, like a moral moral outrage, moral panic um, is taking hold, things are getting heated, whether that's online, offline. What would be some of those interventions that yeah. could help? I think that uh, it, it all kind of goes back to that narrative, the idea of narratives again. Uh, and so one of the best tools we have to regulate our emotions uh, is called cognitive reappraisal. Mm -hmm. And an appraisal is an initial interpretation of the meaning of a situation, its importance, uh, its um, difficulty, something about it that determines our emotional response. And reappraisal involves taking that initial appraisal and reinterpreting it in order to have a more adaptive emotional reaction. So a, a prototypical example is if you get fired uh, from your position. Your initial appraisal, uh, if you're like many of us, is likely to be, this is terrible, I don't know how I'm gonna make rent, uh, this is a judgment on me as a person, and a reappraisal would be taking that initial appraisal and metacognitively, intentionally shifting it uh, to thinking, you know, I hate this job <laughs> and I wanted to move on anyway and this will force my hand. Uh, it will, that uh, this is an opportunity and that more productive set of appraisals or interpretations can lead to a more productive emotional response. And this is the basis of cognitive behavioral therapy, our most effective talk therapy. Uh, Where it's like expanding that range of choice of mm -hmm. how to respond. Right. Uh -huh. Yeah. And I think a lot, you know, narratives are big appraisals. They're big interpretations. And so the moral panic that we're having about smartphones, uh, the um, you know, moral outrage that we feel too consistently, if it's soaking up most of our day, uh, those are opportunities where we could use reappraisal and shift the narrative a bit. Uh, and it's not it's not always going to be to everything is positive, right? And we've talked so much <laughs> about the negatives of, about social media and smartphones. Um, and and so my reappraisal of that is not everything's hunky-dory and there's nothing to be concerned about. Uh, but I think everything is we should panic and that we're doomed is also not a productive set of appraisals. Uh, and that we should 
shift to a set of appraisals that is, okay, how are we going to fix some of these tools? How, you know, what are the limits we're going to put on social media in our personal life and our family life? Uh, what's moderation look like? Um, how do we protect our children while also encouraging their digital citizenship? I think that these are all better appraisals to have uh, than the panicked ones. Mm. And so that those are tools that individuals could learn, practices individuals, and also practices groups. Mm -hmm. Yes. Or that someone could kind of introduce this into a collective setting mm -hmm. um, as an invitation to shift the narrative, shift the appraisal, open up different responses instead of getting wound up in one. Right. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, I'm curious to ask about... Um, I mean, on this similar, in this similar vein, um, but given some of your background around like mood mm -hmm. and anxiety, mm -hmm. um, and it definitely, anxiety seems to be such a um, major texture mm -hmm. <laughs> or like backdrop of so many people's experience. Like it seems to be a defining emotion of our era. Um, you know, the term eco-anxiety has been recently coined to name this kind of like gnawing feeling that so many people have in relation to real ecological crises and, you know, all of these psychologically indigestible headlines that mm -hmm. are coming out with increasing frequency. Um, what could be some of the insights to manage anxiety on a mass level um, coming from your interdisciplinary work? Yeah. I think that there are certainly real and present dangers that uh, deserve and warrant our immediate attention, like climate. Uh, and I think that some of these are unprecedented. But I think if you look toward, to the historical record, there, uh, and I have some of the quotes from different eras in my book, uh, that most times people felt like technology is changing so fast, society is changing so fast, the social structure, you know, at, at various points in our history in the Industrial Revolution, for instance. And I think that we look to the past and we see this like calm, stable, small little changes, you know, um, and that is a narrative, another narrative that is just begot by hindsight uh, and that thinking you know facing the dangers and facing the problems that need solving uh, productively again while trying to dial back uh, fear and anxiety I, uh, Rebecca Solnit has a wonderful quote that uh, op optimists um, think everything will be fine and excuse themselves from acting and pessimists do the same, but in the opposite way. And that we need neither optimism nor pessimism. What we need is action. Uh, and I think that fear from the study of emotion is something that narrows our perspective. Uh, when we're feeling fearful, we focus um, cognitively and neurologically uh, on, on just what's right in front of us because that's an adaptive thing to do. If you're facing an immediate threat, if a jaguar is jumping at your throat, you, you want to focus on it. <laughs> you don't want to be looking to the um, horizons. But I think that when we're embroiled in constant fear, it does that same thing to us. Whereas what we need is creativity and we need playful solutions and uh, out of the box thinking. And all of that requires that we dial back fear. And so 
you know, I don't have a thermometer. <laughs> I can't turn turn down the fear. And I know that's an overly simplistic thing to say to let's stop being so fearful. But uh, I think we need to get there somehow if we're going to come up with creative solutions and come together to solve problems. Mm. And what do you think we could dial up? <laughs> if fear may not be able to be dialed down, what could be dialed up and um, engage um, proactively and creatively with this hive mind? Mm -hmm. I think that a sense of hope, uh, which is uh, in some ways the opposite of fear, um, I think looking toward you know, the horizon and the unknown with a sense that things could be good <laughs> uh, would be helpful. I think that also vulnerability, you know, Brene Brown is someone who's done uh, amazing work and also public scholarship on, on the concept of vulnerability uh, and opening yourself up to mistakes. Mm -hmm. There's uh, recently I was talking with uh, Kelly Leonard from Second City, uh, which is a com comedy organization about improv and about people's willingness to make mistakes um, is something we haven't talked much about but uh, you know the whole idea of call out culture or cancel yeah. culture and very uh, unforgiving with mistakes yes and that we or need no, no room to grow from them mm -hmm. and that is another thing that we need uh, if you're going to be creative you know, creativity comes with like trying some things that don't work out uh, and that you're going to make mistakes and have some bad ideas uh, and so I think hope and greater room for people to um, to take challenges and possibly, you know, mis make mistakes. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> for talking um, with me, with us here tonight. It's my pleasure. It's a pleasure um, to get to know your work. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu podcast. <laughs>